We shall turn now to the Word of God, to the portion uh, read, the book of the Revelation, chapter 1. We might read verse 19 of this chapter just now. Revelation 1, verse 19, the address to John in the Isle of Patmos. Write the things which thou hast seen, and the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. And this is key to understanding the content of this book called The Revelation of Jesus Christ. John is instructed to write. He is merely the scribe. Sometimes we hear that Jesus, although he preached and taught for three years, he never left anything on writing to the church, which is not true, because we have here seven letters particularly written to the seven churches in Asia, and as I trust we shall see, written to the whole church universally in every generation. These letters are the letters of Jesus Christ, the King and the head of the church. You, for example, when you look at the writings of the Apostle Paul, for example, you go to the end of the epistle that he writes to the Ephesians, and you see there, written from Rome unto the Ephesians by Tychicus. Now, you and I don't believe the epistle to the Ephesians is the epistle to the Ephesians from Tychicus. It is Paul's epistle. Tychicus was the scribe who wrote it in the name of Paul as it was dictated to him. You can look again at... uh, (coughs) Philippians, it was written to the Philippians from Rome by Epaphroditus and so on, and you could look at others. Paul's epistles, those who wrote them were just the scribes, the penmen. They were the writings of the apostle. And here we have in the book of the Revelation seven letters to the churches in Asia, and they are from the Savior. They are his writings. He merely uh, tells John he's to write down, not his own thoughts, not his own notions, but the mind and the revelation of Jesus Christ to the seven churches in Asia. Now, you and I know from Scripture, even apart from anything else, there were far more than seven churches in Asia. But these seven churches are identified for a reason. They were representative of the state and the condition of the various churches in the Gentile world, the churches throughout Asia. And not only that, but their spiritual condition is uh, the kind of conditions we find in all churches, in all generations. And that is why the letters to the seven churches are letters to the whole church. In the Hebrew mind, the uh, number seven, like the number three, number Five, number 10, 12, 144 numbers were very important in the Hebrew thinking. And the number seven 
as I'm sure you're aware, it signifies completion and perfection, wholeness, unity and wholeness. And so these letters are from Christ, the risen, glorified Christ, to the church. And this is what it is all about. John was to write three particular things, or he was to write about three particular matters. Write the things which thou hast seen. That's the first thing you write, John. The things you've seen. And what has he seen? We find that in chapter 1 that we've read about already. And then the things which are. What are the things which are? The conditions of the seven churches. That's the things that are. These are real churches. These are real spiritual conditions that exist at the time that John is writing, the time that the Savior is writing to the churches. He's writing about reality, contemporary conditions as they exist, the things that are. And then he's to write about the things which shall be hereafter, the future. He's to write prophetically. He's to write about matters that the church is to expect to take place in the future. Now, very often, the things that appear to matter most to people when they come to the book of the Revelation is speculation about the future. And all kinds of attempts are made to identify the Antichrist, to identify this beast and the great red dragon. And uh, they find uh, Great Britain, America, Russia, uh, Rome, uh, all kinds of theories are uh, apparently based on the revelation as we have it here. Uh, A couple of uh, researchers uh, were of a mind that the turn of the century, that in America alone there were no less than eight million, think of it, eight million what was referred to as prophecy buffs, experts on prophecy. And of course, because of dispensational teaching and premillennial theology, naturally, people are taken up with this subject. They become obsessed with prophecy. And they think they get some comfort out of prophecy if they know, well, the Lord might come in ten years' time. Maybe the millennium will begin at such and such a time. And of course, if we can figure out different events and expect them at different times, and we know we're nearing that time, or it is at a distance, that event, well, then we can work out whether we need to be very attentive, take the matter seriously, whether we can be waiting in a state of slothfulness because we've nothing to worry about just yet. All kinds of theories have been presented supposedly as interpretations of this book. Now, my intention is to consider uh, the seven churches, the writing of the Savior, his letters to the seven churches in Asia. But in order to understand their significance, 
We need to know something of the background, the purpose for which these were written. Now, there is something very important that we should note before we begin. In the chapter 1, verse 17, John, who's the scribe, has, is to write of these things, write the things which thou hast seen. Write the things which thou hast seen. Verse 17. When I saw him. Write that, John. That's the first thing you write about. What did you see, John? Write it. But how did you see it, John? Well, we read in verse 10, John says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet. That voice as of a trumpet got John's attention. It got his attention in order that he might hear and see what he is to write about. Now, remember who John is. Yes, he's an apostle. He's one of the disciples and an apostle of the Lord Jesus. But he is a Jew. And he is familiar with Jewish history. He is familiar with the teaching of Moses and the prophets, the teaching of the law. And what is he there familiar with? You go back to the book of Numbers and the chapter 10, and instructions were given to the Israelites at the beginning of this, chapter 10, the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Make thee two trumpets of silver, of a whole piece shalt thou make them, that thou mayest use them for the calling of the assembly and for the journeying of the camps. that thou mayest use them for the calling of the assembly. You see, from the very beginning, God expected the assembly of his people to be met in time. The trumpets were sounding to call them at a particular time to assemble. What for? They were to assemble and for the journeying of the camps, and when they shall blow with them, all the assembly shall assemble themselves to thee at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. It was to call them to a particular place at a particular time. And they were too, when they heard the sound of the trumpet, they were to assemble at the door of the tabernacle. Uh, some people get the idea God doesn't really matter just so long as you turn up. Well, it don't seem that way with the purpose of these trumpets. But they were to blow, verse 4, if they blow but with one trumpet, then the princes, which are heads of the thousands of Israel, shall gather themselves unto thee. Now there, it's, it's clear what the purpose of these trumpets were for. God 
had ordained the making of them and the purpose for which they were to be used. Now that went on century after century. And when we go to the little prophecy of Joel, the minor prophets, the prophet is writing as directed by God to refer to the blowing of this trumpet. Verse 15 of Joel 2. Blow the trumpet in Zion, sanctify a feast, call a solemn assembly. Well, how could it be anything less than solemn when it is an assembly before God? Gather the people. Gather the people. Who are they? Sanctify the congregation. Assemble the elders. Gather the children and those that suck the breasts, the little tiny infants, are to be brought to the solemn assembly. Ah, but God must not know that these little infants, they don't know what's happening. They don't need to be here. It makes no sense. It's totally irrational. Why would they be the little infants? Bad enough the children, because they can't give much attention. What's the purpose of the children? Little infants. Newborns. What are they doing there? Well, that's God's business. Not our business. This is what people run around so clever. They know better than God. We don't need to bring the little infants to church because they don't know anything. When, when did God authorize us to work this all out? When did God tell us that we're to discriminate and we're to work it out? Who should be there and who should? God said. When the trumpet sounds, gather the whole assembly, children and all, little infants, I want them before me. That's God's business. And it would be good for us if we would learn that lesson. The children let the bridegroom go forth of his chamber and the bride out of her closet, and so on. Call the assembly. And in case you don't know who's included in the assembly, I'll tell you. The elders, and the congregation, and the fathers, and the mothers, and the teenagers, and the children, and the little baby infants, gather them all before me. Now, getting back here to the Revelation, the first chapter, John, verse 10, I was in the Spirit in the Lord's day and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet. John is hearing a voice that is calling him to give attention to God. He's in the Spirit on the Lord's day. And John hears this sound, this voice, and it's like a trumpet. He knows what that means. He knows the significance of it. That he must, as it were, assemble his thoughts, gather his thoughts, Pay attention because he is about to hear something really important. And John says, When I saw him, he turned, verse 11, 
The voice was saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, and what thou seest, write in a book and send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia. What will he write about? Write the things which thou hast seen to the seven churches in Asia. And the first thing you write to them about is what you've seen. What have you seen, John? I turn, verse 12, to see the voice that spake with me, and being turned, I saw. Right, John, you write what you see. Verse 17, when I saw him, yes, he saw the seven golden candlesticks, And in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man. When I saw him, you tell the seven churches, John, from me, what you've seen regarding me. The seven churches must know who I am. And what I am. And what I am doing. They have nothing of any value to comfort them, to sustain them, to uphold them in their time of persecution as we shall see it was. Unless they get their minds focused on me. Right, John, what you, I, when I saw him, seven churches, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. It was remarkable. Now, who's this John? You go back to Matthew 17, for example, and you have the Record there the narrative of the transfiguration of the Savior in the mount. And who was with him? Peter and James and John. John saw his glory along with Peter and with James. And we're told they were afraid when they saw him transfigured. They saw his glory. And they were afraid. Now, John is seeing the same one again. And we might think, well, he's seen this before. This will not shock John. John has seen this person before. He's seen this glory before. John says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet. I fell at his feet. Do you think, my dear friend, you've actually seen him? Do you profess to believe in him? You profess to know him as your Savior? Have you really seen him? This is what the risen Christ is writing to the churches. John, you write about me. Because until they have seen me, they will not understand anything. It will make no sense. Anything else that you write in the next chapters, will make no sense unless the churches have a proper knowledge and understanding of who I am. Now we were singing. And that's Psalm 27. Here's the psalmist, verse 4 of Psalm 27. One thing, I of the Lord desired, 
I hope we meant it. A desire. Above everything else, this is my desire, the psalmist says, that all days of my life I may within God's house remain, the house not built with hands, that I, the beauty of the Lord, that I, the beauty of the Lord, behold me and admire. I want to see my Lord's beauty and glory. I want to admire it. And that I in his holy place may reverently, what? Inquire. What is our approach to God's word? Why do we come to God's house? Is it to reverently inquire? Are we inquiring? Are we seeking? Are we searching reverently? Or do we come to the word of God relying on our own natural ability to reason things out, to understand things? Ah, this is what it means. This is what it's bound to mean. This is what I'm saying it means. Or do we come with reverence, inquiring? inquiring after him, inquiring after the truth. For he and his pavilion shall me hide in evil days. In secret of his tent me hide and in a rock me raise. I want to inquire about him because he's my refuge in trying times and troublous times. He will hide me we're living in troublous times. Where do the people of God look? Do they look to politicians? Do they look to political parties? Where are they looking? What is the desire? One thing I of the Lord desired. That I might see his beauty. That I might inquire about him. Now here we are in the book of the Revelation. What's it all about? Is it all about prophecy? It's all about him. That's who it's all about. The whole book from beginning to end is all about him, all centered around him. And that's why you've got such a diversity of foolish, ridiculous speculation about the meaning. Because men go to their history books. And they go to the historians and the historical events. Now can we fit this in here somewhere? The churches were to understand that when they would see him and see everything centering around him and every event related to him, and governed by him, then they would understand the things which shall be until they understand the things that are. Until they understand what John sees, they won't understand anything else. Now, when we go through the book of the Revelation, reading it, you see, well, I've, I've read it. I've read it umpteen times. At the end of it, was the Savior more precious to you? Or did you say, it's all a mystery to me? So many difficulties, so many different symbols. I'm utterly confused. This is a book that should make the Savior, my dear friend, more precious to you than ever before. And if it doesn't, you're not reading it aright. Dr. Brodus, who became the president 
Uh, well, he, was, he lived during the 1800s, the 19th century, in America, South America, became the president of the Southern Baptist Seminary. He was the professor of New Testament. And he was a chaplain in General uh, Lee's army during the American Civil War. But it was his custom at family worship when he was reading through the Bible, his family and the servants, the Negro servants, and they would all be around him, and he would endeavor to explain the chapter as they were reading it. They were reading through the book of the Revelation, through the seven churches, and he was explaining the message to the seven churches and seeking to apply it. Then he came to chapter 4 of Revelation. And he said to his family, I'm not going to try now to explain these chapters. They're too difficult. They're too mysterious. And so he stopped explaining, and they just read the chapter. And he read through some chapters. Then one morning, as he was reading, the family observed he stopped. And he just was sitting in silence. And then he began to weep. When he looked up, his wife and the children and the Negro servants and maids were all weeping as well. And the reason was that suddenly as he was reading, it all opened up. And he could understand it. And he said that he he saw the wider picture, the glorious Redeemer. He saw him in control of everything. He saw the mystery opening up. The glorious Redeemer was bringing to pass the sovereign decree of God, bringing to fulfillment in full the glorious promise that had been given in in Genesis where the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. And he was seeing, this is what it's all about. The work of our Redeemer crushing the power and destroying the works of darkness. And this is the fulfillment of that glorious covenant promise. And he was overcome because he thought it's all too mysterious. And then his eyes were opened and he could do nothing but weep as he looked at the glorious Christ, risen and exalted, protecting his church, keeping his cause, and overcoming the works of darkness. That's what it's all about. Now, before we come to the seven churches, we need then to look at the things which John sees, write the things which thou hast seen. So we asked John, well, what have you seen, John? Tell us now, what have you seen? Well, he has seen one who's been speaking to him. And he is telling him, first of all, what the purpose of this book really is. Now, we won't understand it, and we don't know its purpose. What is the purpose of this book? Well, look at the very introduction, the very first opening words of the book. What do we read? The revelation of Jesus Christ. 
That's what it's all about. The revelation of Jesus Christ. Would John not think we've already had the revelation of Jesus Christ? I, with the other disciples, we beheld his glory as the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. We've already had the revelation of God in Christ, who is the express image of his person. This is not a revelation. This is the revelation. The revelation of Jesus Christ. It's a revelation to the churches of him. Telling us all about him. Informing us about his work and ministry. The disciples, including John, as we go to the beginning of the book of Acts, they were standing as witnesses, seeing the Savior leave them, and informed that he would return again as he had left them. And John might think, well, we had three years of teaching instruction, and then we were commissioned to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded. And John might conclude, that's it. We've been instructed, we've been taught, we've had the truth, Revealed to us, now we will go out and spread the message around. And then, John being the last of the apostles might conclude, well, what's going to happen now? James is gone. Peter's gone. Matthew's gone. These apostles, one by one, they passed away. Paul is gone. They're silent now. Their ministries are at an end. What happens now? There are no more witnesses left. I'm the last of the apostles. I am the last surviving apostle who actually looked on the Son of God in our nature, who actually touched him, who heard him, who listened to him, who was instructed by him, who was commissioned. What happens now? He guided us while he was among us. He instructed us so that we were eyewitnesses. We were coming first-hand bringing the truth to those to whom we were sent. Now what happens? John hears a voice behind him as the sound of a trumpet. John, pay attention. The churches need to hear something. And they need to have it written to them the revelation of Jesus Christ. They need to know what Jesus Christ is actually doing now. Isn't that something worth writing? If I were to ask you, what is Jesus Christ doing now? What would you say? Well, isn't he in heaven? What's he doing in heaven? Well, isn't he the great high priest who intercedes for his people? Isn't that something very important? He is still revealing his power, his saving authority, and his power. And this is a revelation to comfort, to encourage, 
the church of Jesus Christ, the militant church of Christ in this world. The revelation of Jesus Christ. Not the revelation about the Russians or the Germans or Hitler or Mussolini or the Pope and the Antichrist. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave to him. It's an accurate one. It's a reliable revelation. It is genuine. To show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. And he sent and signified it by his angel, and so on. Now then, what kind of a revelation is it? It is undoubtedly a revelation regarding his offices. In the verse 12, John says, I turned to see the voice that spake unto me, and being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. Now we're not left in the dark as to what these symbolize, what they represent. Verse 20, the mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand and the seven golden candlesticks. The seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches. The seven churches. They are, first of all, candlesticks made of gold. Precious, the most precious material. So that John is to write to the churches to inform them as to how precious they are to the glorious Christ. You look, even in the church, the message, the, the letter to the church of the Laodiceans, and uh, they are rebuked because of their terrible low spiritual condition. And yet in verse 19 of chapter 3, what does the Savior write to them? As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Yes, I'm rebuking the church. Yes, I'm chastening the church. But it's because I love the church. And dear child of God, if you become aware that he's chastising you or afflicting you, it's because he loves you, he's doing it. As many as I love, I rebuke. God pity you, dear soul, if he never rebukes you. If he just lets you drift on, you're in a sorry state. He rebukes and he chastises those that he loves. And here we have the Savior Tell the churches what you saw, John. What did you see? Well, I saw seven golden candlesticks. And he informed me that they were of gold. But they are golden light bearers. That's the purpose for their existence. They are precious to the risen, glorified Christ. He who is now in heaven He loved the church and he gave himself for it. He loves that church. And he loves these seven churches. There's a lot of things in them that he doesn't love. There's a lot of things taking place in these churches that he disapproves of. And so he rebukes them and he threatens to chastise them but it's because he loves them. They are precious to him. It was his own precious blood that bought them. But they are light bearers. And they bear light on his behalf. They are his witness 
and they're his testimony in a dark and godless world. And if we are not shining lights, bearing witness to the truth and the darkness, well, I don't know why we exist. Because Christ, is he revealing himself as walking in the midst of these seven golden candlesticks. Walking in the midst of them. Familiar with them all. Ah, you might say, well, when we read through the seven churches and the condition of each one of them, we might be inclined to think, well, He's bound to be a bit closer to the church in Samaria. Or perhaps he might be uh, more close to the church in Philadelphia. And he'd be furthest removed from the church of the Laodiceans because of their condition. No, no. He walks in the midst. He walks in the midst. John, you tell them that. He doesn't turn his back because there are things that he disapproves of. He says, I will rebuke them. And that's why his servants are required in his name by his authority to rebuke in the professing church of Christ what is erroneous and what is wrong. Christ writes to rebuke and he writes to chastise because he loves. Now, here he is in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. And how does he appear? As prophet, as priest, as king. Write to the churches. Tell them, I am still engaged as the glorious Redeemer. Children learn their catechism about who the Redeemer is and how he executes his offices as prophet, as priest, as king. And what John is to write to the churches is this, he's still in office and he's still executing those offices. First of all, Uh, You see how John describes what he saw in the midst. Verse 13 of the seven golden candlesticks. One like unto the Son of Man. Ah, yes. One like unto the Son of Man. In the midst of the golden candlesticks. One who is near to his people. Who identifies with them who has compassion because he was tempted in all points as they are, yet without sin. But look how he's clothed. Clothed with a garment down to the foot and girded about the paps with a golden girdle. His head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire. Basically, what John is Seeing here is what he saw on the Mount of Transfiguration. These are the garments of his priesthood. He's clothed as the glorious, exalted priest, walking in the midst of the golden candlesticks. It's as though he's holding them all together. But he's walking among them as their intercessor. If he was not there, they would not exist. Oh, there are things that he will have to rebuke in them. Because he sees, he knows their inconsistencies, their weaknesses. 
But he's the great high priest who offered up one sacrifice for sins forever and he's still interceding. Then we're told his feet are like unto fine brass as if they burned in a furnace and his voice as the sound of many waters. You see what he's drawing attention to? What he appears like? What he sounds like? And so on. Why does he refer to his feet like under fine brass? You remember the image in the book of Daniel that was set up? Or the rather the in the dream, not the image that was set up in the dream. The brass was at the, the golden uh, top and then it came down to silver and then brass and brass mingled with clay and then the feet broke. Here, the feet are of brass, unbreakable. This is not an image that is going to topple. This is not someone who's unreliable. Someone who will not be secure and stable. His feet are as brass, hard in the furnace to tread down his enemies. Oh, John in the Isle of Patmos, persecuted with a church that is suffering great persecution and opposition, feeling helpless feeling hopeless as far as their, uh, uh, the arm of flesh is concerned. What can we do against the mighty Roman emperor? What can we do against the persecuting powers? It seems Rome possesses the feet of brass, treading us down. Ah, oh, no. John, tell the churches that you have seen me in my glory, And you have seen me walking amidst my people. My feet are as the feet of brass to tread down my foes and your foes, John. Now, he describes his head and his hairs as white as wool, undoubtedly referring to his righteousness He is, as Daniel refers to him, as the Ancient of Days. In fact, if you look at the details here, you go to the book of Daniel and you go to the book of Zechariah and you go to the book of Ezekiel and so on, you'll find that what John, the description, the details, are actually the same as uh, we find in the prophetic books of the Old Testament. But... His voice as the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. What is John now talking about? His prophetic office. His mouth. Out of his mouth there is going a sharp Two-edged sword, the mighty word, the indisputable word, the word of authority, the word of the king. John, tell the churches that I am not silent, and I will not be silent. I will speak on my behalf, and I will speak by my authority And I will speak for my people when they can't speak for themselves. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. The apostle tells us in Hebrews that that is the sword of the Spirit of God, the Word of God, the Word of the prophet. Tell them, John, that whatever... A Dominican or whatever emperor is in, is in the throne, let it be Nero, whoever it is, tell them my word is the word of the Alpha and the Omega. 
If you don't happen to know, that's the first and the last letter of the Greek alphabet, and everything else goes in between. And what here the risen Savior is saying to John, tell them, verse 8, I am the Alpha and the Omega. Verse 11, I am the Alpha and the Omega. Verse uh, 18, I am he that liveth and was dead, and I am alive forevermore. Tell them, I am the great I am. John is the one who in his gospel draws our attention to all the various I am's. He obviously meant a lot to John. I am the good shepherd. I am the light of the world. I am the way and so on. And here's John writing to the seven churches. Tell them in their uh, conditions, when they're being persecuted, when they're suffering. John's in the Isle of Patmos, Uh, there because of persecution, tell them that the great prophet has the final word. He is the first word, and he's going to have the final word. He's the omega. And whatever they say, whatever they prophesy, whatever they predict, whatever they scheme, Tell the churches, I am going to have the final word. Oh, how sometimes the Lord's people get so distressed. And this is happening. And that's happening. And this event's taking place. Oh, how terrible it is. And terrible though it is. He is going to have the final word. And that's what the church is to understand. Well, the politicians, they'll say this. Prime Minister will say that. The government will declare this. Tell my people, I will have the final word. I am the church's great prophet. But then, in addition... He is the glorious king. What do we see? I am he that liveth, verse 18, and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. The widow of Nain, her son, was raised from the dead. You have Lazarus raised from the dead. But they died again. Lazarus couldn't say, I am alive and alive forevermore. He was alive temporarily, he would die again. I am alive, and I am alive forevermore, and I'm walking in the midst of my people. I am alive for them. I am alive on their behalf. And I live for them. Furthermore, what does he say? I have the keys of hell and of death. And I open and no man can shut. And I shut and no man can open. All power is mine. Oh, John, write to the churches. They're being persecuted. They're suffering. They're downcast. They're discouraged. But tell them about me. Focus their attention on me. Remind them who I am, what I'm doing. And tell them to do something. Verse 3, with this we close. Blessed is he that does three things with this book. Blessed is he that first of all readeth. And they that hear the words of this prophecy, and thirdly, keep those things which are written therein. If we are to profit, 
If we're to benefit, we do three things. We read, we hear, and we keep what is written in the book of this prophecy. What an amazing book it is. How sad that so little attention is actually given to it. And when attention is given, people become obsessed with it. Obsessed with prophecy. Instead of being obsessed with Christ. That's what it's all about. And may as we read through it, become obsessed with him. May bless his word. Let us pray. Our gracious eternal God, we do give thee thanks for the revelation of Jesus Christ. Oh, do thou open our eyes to see and to behold him. Put that desire in our hearts that we were reading of, the desire to see him, to admire him. Oh, may we admire him this day as we see him revealing himself to his beloved church. Bless thy truth to us. Pardon all our sins. Receive us for the Redeemer's sake. Amen.